Welcome to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. Your on-the-go bite of the food and beverage industry. Welcome to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. My name's Grant McCarran, and today I'm once again joined by Kim Berry, the editor of Food and Drink Business and the host of this show. G'day, Kim. How's it going today? Well, I am very well, thank you, Grant. And the sun is shining in Sydney. Repeat, the sun is shining. We'll stop the presses and we'll let everyone go out and enjoy that while it lasts. Down here in Melbourne, of course, it is windy with rain coming tomorrow. Oh, nice. So, yes, there you go. We've done our weather report. We've done the weather report. We can now move (laughs) on. (laughs) Uh, Today, we are joined by the president of ANZJ for Mondelez International. ANZJ stands for Australia and New Zealand, obviously, and Japan. And that president would be Darren O'Brien. Hi, Darren. Hi, Kim. How are you this afternoon? I am very well. I am very well. Just for our listeners, uh, Mondelez globally, their revenue was about, its revenue was about $33.7 billion last year. Uh, It employs almost 80,000 people uh, globally and around 3,000 of them fall under under your jurisdiction, is that the word we should use? It sounds very presidential, <laughs> but uh, but your numbers are pretty it accurate. D- <laughs> I tell you what, I do. I would quite like a title that had "president" in it. I think that <laughs> I think that'd be quite good. I'd throw that around at home. I often no have end. a lot of fun coming back into the country when you fill out that little uh, uh, orange form when it says occupation. I write in "president." I get great looks from the customs officials. That's, yeah, that is, I I love that. I love it. Um, Darren, you've been in the role for about two years, but you've been with the company since 2008. It is, is, yeah. Look, I I came back here in July of 2020. Before that, I had four years in our European business based out of Zurich. Uh, And so, yeah, I came back for all the excitement of lockdown. Uh, We talked about the weather before. They used to say the hardest part of a three-day lockdown in Melbourne was the first six weeks. So, but thankfully we're through that, and we have been having a lot more sunshine than Sydney. But it's been it's been two great years in many you respects, have. enormous amount of challenges, but also a tremendous amount of satisfaction in being able to navigate both for our business and for those three thousand employees through that. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, I think those challenges that was one of the things that uh, I guess made me so excited to be talking to you today because. I heard you present at the recent Global Food Forum um, talking about the the challenges that the industry is facing and some of the key things that you would really like to see change or at least have further, you know, productive discussions around. Um, and I think one of those was was talking about just the multiple voices or the multiple standards that you had to meet and that there was such a need for a cohesive body. Yeah, look, it's, it's very true. I mean, look, the food and grocery industry, and, you know, as you know, I wear a couple of hats and, and one of my other roles is as the chairman of the Australian Food and Grocery Council. Uh, it's a critical industry. And I think we saw that very much over the last two years when people who'd been so used to going to supermarkets and always been able to find the products that they, they wanted and even the necessity products like toilet paper saw for the first time in, uh, in living memory empty shelves. And I think it brought home the importance of the supply chain, the reliance we have on the ready availability of food and grocery items. 
And it's often easy to forget that, you know, it all starts back on the farm, whether it be the milk you have on your cornflakes uh, or the butter you have with your toast, it goes back to agriculture, uh, whether it be wheat, whether it be milk, uh, whether it be all the, the, the fruits and vegetables that we provide. Um, and this is, this is vital industry. It's vital to have sovereign capability. But I think most importantly, it's also critical if we're serious about continuing to drive productivity, if we're serious about continuing to have a food and grocery industry that thrives, is that you have end-to-end policy frameworks. And too often, um, right. and I've seen from, from many persuasions of government, um, they'll have some signature policies, but they'll focus on one particular area and they won't be joined up. They won't think of the consequences or the benefits all the way through the supply chain. And you probably heard me say at the Food and Grocery uh, Forum about you, one of the areas is, is labelling. And all the products that we buy in supermarkets are all labelled. But the amount of changes that go on in a disjointed fashion to the requirements on those labels uh, are quite significant. You know, right at the moment, we're in the process um, across the food industry of doing plain uh, English allergen labelling. Now, for a company like ours, we have about a thousand SKUs. That's a thousand labels that we need to change. And I think we have a, a deadline of uh, sometime July or so of 2024. At the same time, we're also looking at label changes across the industry for recycled logos. We've got flagged changes mm-hmm. potentially to um, sugar labeling requirements. Uh, and that you do that three times, and we estimate that costs around about $3,000 per label change. For a business like ours, that's $3 million each time. You do that three times, that's $9 million. We're one business. This is money that could otherwise go into infrastructure investment, uh, new capital equipment, creation of more jobs, more, more innovation, but instead we spend it unnecessarily on multiple changes of labelling. But if you tied it all up, that $3,000 example I gave you would be the same cost to do three changes at once. So this is an example I think where having that end-to-end view uh, could help us be productive, it benefits manufacturers, it benefits consumers, and it makes a lot of sense. Oh, it makes so much sense. And and so, okay, two-part question, why does that not already exist and how do you make it happen? Look, I think we've, we've got governments who need to actually pay attention to how do you bring this together. So, you know, we have a Minister for Agriculture, but it's primarily focused on agriculture. It's not then going further down the supply chain. Now, I flag the idea, and I still think it's got a lot of merit. Um, why don't we have um, a super ministry for the food industry or for the food and grocery industry that could actually have a look at the various remits around this and to say before we actually make a a change, whether it be in terms of source of origin labelling or whether we do it around food regulation, which then sits in the health department uh, under Fazance, under all of the state health ministers and the federal health minister, how do you bring this together and do it in a way that actually serves uh, to allow to enable our you know our vital industries to thrive, and I think that's part of it to to join this up like we have done um, in, in other areas. If you if you did defence, imagine if you just had a minister for navy, a minister for army, a minister for air force, uh, and how that would work. Um, so coordination's key, right? And I think we've learned this through some of the natural disasters and so on that we've faced, whether it be flooding or bushfires and so on. Coordination's so important. 
to speed of response and also the efficiency of that response. And I don't think a vital industry like food and grocery is any different. I mean, now that you've said that, it seems incredulous that we don't have, that that doesn't exist because if COVID showed us anything, it was how critical we all know food and we all know food and beverage is critical, you know, and the grocery industry is critical for for us to survive. But it was shown how critical it was on a, on all manner of levels as an as an employer, as a, keeping up, you know, and and ensuring that there was um, you know a supply of. And you sort you sort of think this is a critical industry, and and other critical industries exactly that have a ministry and have a really, you know, centralised sort of setup to ensure that wherever, you know, a wheel falls off or, you know, a, a rail line gets taken out by flooding or, you know, a supply chain gets knocked knocked down due to, you know, <laughs> log jams or, or on shortage container pallets, ships. Which has been one of the challenges we've had shortage recently. Of, shortage of pallets. Sea freight. Yeah. I mean, there, there's many examples of it, but I, but I also, you know, I, I want it to go deeper as well because I think if you have a look at the skill shortages in this country at the moment, um, and I go, as you probably know, and talk to dairy farmers. We have uh, 48 of our own dairy farmers in Tasmania provide all our milk for, for Cadbury Dairy Milk Chocolate. And you listen to them about the challenges that they've had uh, finding any farm labour. They've also got challenges themselves with their own next generation about their interest in going into what is a hard job, whether it be dairy farming or whether it be general agricultural farming. Um, if you can't attract the labour, if you can't necessarily provide the incentives where the next generation want to come through, who is actually going to be running these farms in 15 and 20 years' time? Uh, and these are questions that we have to face into because agriculture and farming has been the backbone of this country. I don't think a corporatised model for agriculture works. That's my view. Some may disagree. But I think we have to have the policy settings, the incentives, the access to, to capital, the ability to make sure that we uh, you know, don't let massive fertiliser price hikes as a result of uh, the tragic war in Ukraine actually make it unproductive to farm. But these are the things we want to see addressed. Uh, and these, they do need a long-term vision and a policy framework. Uh, but it's going to be critical, and I'm sure a lot of people were pretty surprised when I think milk went up about 26% the other day for one litre of milk. Uh, and, you know, there's a number of factors playing into that. But you're not going to solve that by talking about a cost of living crisis. You're going to solve that by having policy settings and long-term policy settings that actually provide the incentives and the reward. Uh, for people to go into, um, you know, food manufacturing, agriculture manufacturing, and also want to continue to make it more productive so that you can deal with cost pressures without having to simply pass them through to consumers. I think particularly from, you know, from where food and drink business sits, we see so many stories of I mean, primary producers, even though we focus more on the manufacturing aspects, but then we look at manufacturers and we look at companies who are being really innovative and are doing really um, new uh, new ways of doing business and new ways of running, um, you know, their operations. And But to scale that and to see that adopted um, for them, scale it for themselves and to adopt it on a broader level, it, it just seems to... You know, you kind of wish where there's a will, there's a way, but there doesn't seem to be enough 
push or there doesn't seem to be enough momentum to to make these things start to happen like on a scale where it's going to really make an impact. Is that is that fair or is that just me being a, you know, well, negative Well, look, I think Nelly? part of it, it is easy to be negative on some of these things because what we haven't been seeing or hearing enough about um, is both a vision and then a plan to make it happen. So, you know, sustainability is such a critical issue at the moment, very topical, uh, whether it be from, you know, from climate change through to recycled materials, even through to how waste is collected um, and segregated. Now, if I look at uh, both our businesses and businesses that I talk to, uh, we're attempting to make uh, big steps in terms of the amount of recycled content in our packaging. Uh, in fact, uh, from June this year, we're going to have 30% recycled content in our packaging for, for Cadbury blocks. But we had to go and get all of that recycled content from overseas because the ability to actually process uh, recycled uh, or collected soft plastics in this country uh, back into the virgin resin to then go back into making a, a circular economy for plastics doesn't exist. Now, we're having lots of conversations about it, but it's going to take investment. It's going to take the policy settings that I've spoken about. Um, and it's going to take vision from companies to actually go and do it. And it's in a similar regard. You know, we've uh, recently gone into a power purchasing agreement, which has meant that we're using renewable sources for electricity across all of our Victorian manufacturing sites. We're already doing it from hydro uh, in Tasmania. Uh, but the amount of um, policy setting that's now required to say, well, how do you get the investment for reliable supply of renewable energy. We've seen recently, I think we got down to less than 10% of the required gas reserves in Victoria. Now, we cast our minds back, and, and I'm old enough to remember having the cold showers. I was up in Albury, Redonga at the time uh, when we had long <laughs> gas disaster, but we didn't have gas. Factories stopped. Now, I mean, cold showers are one thing, but factories had to stop. We came within 10% of that the other day. But... You know, the, deb the debate needs to move on and has to now come with a vision, policy settings to encourage that investment and to provide certainty to businesses uh, around whether it be the ability to get recycled content, whether it be the very uh, mandatory requirements of having energy uh, to run factories. And I think this is what I'm going to continue to agitate for, but I think it's what people should be demanding. You know, we debate too much about uh, targets, um, or settings for the next three months or for the next six months, you go and look at what happened in places like Singapore. You have a look at what's happening in even places like uh, you know, China and so on, and you are talking about 10- and 20-year plans. And we've got to stop thinking about that as being a lifetime away or that's something for three changes of government's time to say you've got to be doing it now. I mean, I make decisions in our business knowing they're not going to come into effect for three or four years. But that doesn't mean I don't go, oh, gee, the likelihood that I'm still in this role is low in that period of time, although I hope that's not the case. But if I did that, <laughs> then we wouldn't have capital no, equipment in place right. in like four years' time. We wouldn't be modernising uh, and building very advanced distribution centres. This is, this is what vision and long-term thinking is about, and, and it's what we need a lot more of in this country. <laughs> so true. Gosh. I want to back up to the Cabri wrappers um, because – I want you to explain the 30% concept because I know a lot of people 
that I talk to are like, well, why is it only 30%? Why isn't it just My children are like that. I can and then you. I start. I, I, I told my, yeah. my, my 16-year-old daughter, Abigail, that we're putting in 30%. She said, why only 30%? Um, and it's a very fair question. Um, and my vision uh, and the vision that we have as a business is to get to 100%. I mean, the, 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 the real game is to have a circular uh, economy in this regard, circular packaging so that we don't rely on any virgin materials um, and you're not creating any unnecessary waste. The challenge is um, I bought through, through Mondelez, we went and got all of the available recycled resin from Europe, uh, at, at, which was a trial component, to be able to do the 30%. Um, now, we're looking at various options at the moment to say how can we actually access more recycled content. Uh, but, you know, I'd love to also be able to get in Australia because at the moment what you're saying, you'll collect recycled. That was my next question was why is it because not coming from no, Australia? Uh, infrastructure yet other than on a small trial basis to be able to take soft plastics and convert them back into um, effectively its oils base. Now, companies like Quinos and Lysella and others are all looking at that and they're talking to government about making these investments. And by the way, these are multi-billion dollar investments. I was going to say, this oh, is small change. Small change. Uh, and you need petrochemical companies involved. I mean, there's a number of elements to it. But this is ultimately, if you want those waste streams that go into the curbside to come back into finished products, um, you've got to make these investments. Now, we've said, well, we're not going to wait for that. So we'll source it from overseas to start with and we'll put in the maximum content we could get, which was 30%. As more becomes available, we'll increase that recycled uh, content. Um, and we're also getting involved too in some of the trial systems to make sure you can actually collect these soft plastics. Soft plastic wrappers aren't collected at the moment. Um, you know, they're very lightweight. You've got to have the infrastructure in place about to collect them as well to, to create this circular economy. Um, and so... So is a soft so so Darren is a soft plastic what we would put into the red cycle yes, system correct. or is it something absolutely so okay. all of those soft plastics yep. are what's going to go in there and then we're and we're also then going to undertake as well and the AFGC are driving this from a QR code to educate consumers about uh, you know what's recyclable what's not which bins they can they can go in uh, but we but it's a strong start you know thirty percent is a lot more than zero percent. And 100% will, will yes. actually be the, the ticket to the game. Um, and so I think that's what we, well, can, I, we continue to drive and agitate for. Well, I mean, I had I'd thought that the 30% was had something to do with the integrity of the recycled component in terms of them being able to get the dyes and the, and the glues and the everything else off it so that they can, so that it can then actually be food grade. Well, it's, it's honestly right. not that complicated. Uh, now, this is why you need some serious investment, but I think they call it uh, a, a cracking process. But basically, you take it and you turn it back into oils. Um, and then now there's various mechanisms to do this, but uh, what you get really is almost exactly what you would start would have got when you started from virgin materials. It's just you're creating your own source of the oils um, through the, the processes that it goes through. So it's ideal in that regard. It makes a, a lot of sense. It'll be more expensive to start, but the more scale you get, ultimately you would expect this to be um, a more, well, as economic, if not more economic, and certainly far more sustainable. And for you as a company, what what feedback are you getting from consumers in terms of their expectations around around this sort of this area is sustainability one of the big factors that that consumers are coming back to you guys about in terms of packaging and and where products are made or or is it 
or are there other factors that are that are more pressing from you know from look i think there's there's no doubt certainly in the the last few months that i think potentially the the cost of living uh, inflation prices interest rates and other things have been very topical and top of mind but uh, as you would have seen the debates um, around energy and climate um, have also been at the forefront and i think consumers expectations continue to increase whether it be on everything from your uh, you know, are you sourcing ethically? You know, can you assure us that you don't have sort of any violations of modern slavery requirements? Um, you know, are you using renewable energies? Is there recycled? Are your packaging recycled? That's almost just a ticket to the game expectation now. And then are you getting it recycled right. to actually produce the, the content? Um, and then also around labelling and things like that too. There's, you know, people have um, some serious uh, allergen challenges that they need to manage. But I think we can get smarter around this too, in terms of, you know, from a digital perspective, the amount of iPhones that we carry or enabled devices that have cameras or the ability to scan QR codes and get all the information well beyond anything that could go into packaging. So I think we've got to continue to be smart about this as well and say, how do you use technology to enable more education, more knowledge, go further than you could have actually previously gone um, to address a lot of these concerns. I mean, one of our big programs, um, Cocoa for Life, uh, which is, you know, how we go our whole sourcing model of um, cocoa beans uh, largely from Ghana, um, is then all about how do you provide uh, education for uh, the farmers on the most productive use of the land? How can they increase their output for sort of um, every square metre of land that they're using um, through to ensuring that we can uh, get their children educated as well so that they're able to then continue on the work and focus on some of these, you know, productive uh, outcomes. So, you know, a, a lot of this is very interesting to consumers and their expectations are only going to increase and so they should. So they should. I mean, I've got three kids and I tell you, the amount of uh, hard time I get over the dinner table and the, the quizzing that I get <laughs> around what things um, am I doing, is my company doing to address the concerns? Now, some of it comes from ill-informed TikTok videos. I can tell you some of the things I've been accused <laughs> of at six o'clock at night um, would make an interview with Lee Sales look tame, uh, but it's, it's a good <laughs> challenge. And, and they're ultimately the consumers of the future. Um, as well as they, they have, you know, my ear. Um, so it's important. It's important to them. It's important to all the consumers we speak to that we continue to make progress in this regard. And look, there's, the, you know, your kids and my kids are now the largest cohort. You know, they're the they're the biggest purchasing, or they're the start, the tail end of the biggest purchasing cohort. So, yeah. well, I, yeah, yeah, my my son Harry, I had the funniest question he asked me a couple of years ago, and I'm not sure what prompted this, but he said, "Dad, are you a capitalist pig?" <laughs> and he'd been reading Animal Farm. They've been doing Animal Farm as part of it. So uh, all, all I could come up with was oh, to say, you know, four, four legs good, two legs better. But uh, it's uh, it's interesting uh, what kids are capable of doing. I can tell you. Wow! 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 That is that is harsh. So Cadbury's turning a hundred years old this year. That is pretty that's pretty exciting you'll be glad to know that i'm leaning in and uh helping celebrate very regularly well, look, it's great and look i mean we've been having a lot of fun this year as well celebrating i think 
the uh, the ten different labels that we did on on Cadbury blocks to celebrate um, different milestones from each decade, including things like the 1999 and 91 World Cup wins um, for rugby, which seem a long time ago now, um, through to what we've done with the, the Harbour Bridge and and all the various iconic things that we celebrate, including the you know the great role that sort of Cadbury played with our soldiers uh, during the World Wars. Um, people, people, consumers have loved it. Um, you know, I can't believe I, I go out and into supermarkets reasonably regularly, but to see people actually looking for the labels that they hadn't already had was great. And, uh, you know, going down and I was in Tasmania with all of our farmers, we had a dinner down there, also the Premier of Tasmania, the pride that they had in knowing that they had been supplying some of them for three or four generations, the milk to make Cadbury chocolate in Tasmania for the last hundred years uh, was amazing. And so we've been enjoying it, and I think it's also now fun to plan about, well, what are people going to talk about in 100 years' time from now with Cadbury? And so even things like with our uh, our sponsorship that's now been going for two years of the Wallabies, Australian Wallabies and Wallaroos rugby union teams, with now a Rugby World Cup coming up in uh, 2027 here in Australia. Now, that's 24 years ago that we had the 2003 World Cups. So they don't come around that often. So to actually be involved in that uh, is really exciting for us. Um, to see the Matildas uh, uh, soccer team uh, do so well um, recently. So there's a couple of really exciting things happening. But uh, it's great to see brands that have been part of Australian life um, for so long and to see the engagement, to hear people's stories I was, uh, I was, I should be careful in case my uh, my boss in Singapore listens to this. But I was playing golf last Friday, and uh, I played with a lovely lady, uh, Bridget, <laughs> and uh, she was telling me as we went around, she found I worked for Cadbury, but she was t- giving me a pricey of each of our adverts. She told me how much she loves the shopkeeper ad, and did people really go in and try and pay with buttons? She told me how much she recently loves the ad in the the uh, convenience store with the thanks, Dad. And I was yet blown away, but amazingly, and I, I pay some pretty serious people to give us all this advice on these ads, Bridget had it nailed. She knew what each of those ads were trying to achieve. She even told me which ones just, weren't that good. So uh, it's quite amazing. And one of the things I love is talking to you consumers. Could, you could save quite know, a lot of your I budget. I should play golf on Fridays more often. Absolutely. Just play golf. <laughs> golf on Fridays. There's the market research. Bang. Uh, there's a lot of truth to it. <laughs> I think um, coming out of COVID and and – I think that general sense in the population that that everything feels pretty hard and pretty grim at the moment, uh, the loyalty or the nostalgia to brands, it, it seems to be stronger than it's ever been. And so people, are, and we this was reported during COVID, was that people were returning to those brands that they used to eat when they were a kid or, you know, younger and <laughs> were coming back to them. And, and uh, you know, I think the the, hundred, the 100th anniversary, the 100th birthday is a real, you know, is, is almost the encapsulation of that, that, that people see it and, and, you know, know that it's just been a part of their part of their life yeah. really and look there, there is something special I have to tell you uh you know working for a company and and having the leadership role here where you know that you bring joy into people's lives uh and I think very few people if any don't love chocolate and the enjoyment that they get from it or, or Oreo cookies or TNCC confectionery and so um you know we've got the whole generosity uh theme around Cadbury um and trying to bring that to life as well in in many things that we do but also knowing that people, as you say, when there's uncertainty uh, and and when there are tough times, 
you do go to the things that they love, things that have been a part of their lives for, for many years, and we're very fortunate to play that role in Australia. It's really, no, it's great. And look, we're just, uh, we're just about to run out of time, and uh, so I tend to always ask our guests at the, at the end, uh, what, uh, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Do you know, I know, I know it, sounds, uh, it, it, it sounds egotistical, but I, I always tell myself every morning when I get up that today is a new opportunity to change the world. And when I tell myself that, it gives me the energy to jump out of bed because it is it, it is something I take very seriously, whether it was keeping all of our 3,000 employees safe during COVID, uh, whether it's continuing to make big investments in our manufacturing footprint here in Australia to uh, keep another 100 years of, of Cadbury intact, whether it's been a part of the Australian, you know, uh, Wallabies Rugby Union team and their success, these are all opportunities that impact real people's lives. And if it's done in a positive way, including things like our recycled uh, content in our packaging to try and change our impact uh, on the environment for the better, um, I couldn't have more energy in the mornings. And, and it's, it's so true. Uh, if you believe that you can do anything, you can. Well, I think that's the perfect note to end on. <laughs> uh, Darren, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, it's been a wonderful, wonderful chat. And there's so much promise. I think that's one of the things I always think about this industry. There's so much promise and there is so much drive within it. And, um, and I think you've really sort of, you've really encapsulated that today. So thanks so much. Fantastic. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Kim. Well, thanks, Darren. Thanks, Kim. And of course, thanks for this amazing conversation, which has uh, reduced my guilt at having another Cadbury chocolate bar <laughs> later today. So, uh, and also, of course, thanks to our audience for joining us today. Don't forget, if you enjoyed what you heard, you can follow this podcast in your favorite podcatcher to ensure you get every episode as they're released. But we'll be back in the not too distant future with another informative discussion. But until then, have a great day and go get some more chocolate. <laughs> You've been listening to the Food and Drink Business Podcast, produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Food and Drink Business, owned and published by Yaffa Media. The views of the people featured on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of Food and Drink Business, Yaffa Media, or the guest's employer. The contents are copyright by Yaffa Media. If you wish to use any of this podcast's audio, please contact us via our website or send an email to editor at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You can subscribe to this podcast via your preferred platform and read all the latest news on Australia's food and beverage industry at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast.